Namaskar and thank you for coming for this event. I'd like to give a little overview of the book and then discuss one aspect specifically because Radham is here and he's, he's, he's a top-notch scientist also interested in Sanskrit so I have one aspect that I want to uh, highlight and hopefully get his uh, view on that. The book overall is, a, is positioning a debate between insiders and outsiders. Insiders being those who view the Sanskrit and Sanskriti traditions as with Shraddha, with their own sadhana, it's part of their sadhana, it's their heritage, they're invested in it, it's not just something random, and it's not just an ordinary language. So these are insiders. Outsiders are those who either reject the Vedic Shruti completely, or they're sort of mildly tolerant to it, but they're not really seriously invested. And they're looking at it objectively as an outsider, studying somebody else's culture or somebody else's identity. Because of the colonial history, uh, which we haven't uh, recovered from, we're still mentally colonized, the uh, outsiders have controlled traditionally the study of Sanskrit, and it's called Indology. Uh, it started with the British, and now it, it's uh, controlled mainly by the Americans. So the empire has shifted across the Atlantic, in a sense. And what used to be West uh, European Orientalism became what I'm calling American Orientalism. And, and now this influence of the West in Sanskrit studies is even more than it used to be in the colonial times because in the colonial times it used to be white people studying all this sitting in places like Oxford. Now a huge number of Indians have been sent there to learn this stuff and come back. So now it's being propagated also by Indians. And so these, it, it looks more authentic because Indians are talking about it. But the knowledge, the theories, the Siddhant, the frameworks are often uh, driven by Western ideas and Western approaches. This is not an anti-West kind of a posture. It just says that there are many ways of looking at something and all these ways are important. But unfortunately, the insider perspective has not been given fair share. It's, it's often not present or it's present in a denigrated way uh, or the insiders who are present are not very assertive. So the purpose of this book is to highlight uh, what are the issues an insider would have with the outsider perspective. The outsider perspective uh, being what is controlled by certain prominent Indologists in the United States particularly and their students in this country. So that's the insider-outsider debate. It started, I started writing this book when I realized that Shingeri Mutt was about to sign up one of the American Ivy Leagues to represent the whole legacy of Adi Shankara by setting up chairs with some rich NRIs were funding, putting four or five million dollars per chair. And the Adi Shankara legacy would be in their hands they would select the professors, the speakers, how to run the show. And it concerned me that we were outsourcing this legacy without proper evaluation of who these people are and what's their history, what have they written about our tradition, and whether they're really qualified. So I started doing a report for the Shankaracharya, 
And that report started out as a 50-page report, then it became a 100-page report. And the more I studied about these Indologists, the more concerned, more red flags. So now it's a 500-page book. So this book is really the outcome of this research to provide due diligence to the Shingeri people so they can evaluate more about this particular chair. This was going to be announced uh, in August or September or thereabouts 2014. And it was just four weeks away from being announced. And when I intervened, they put it on hold. They haven't announced it yet. And we don't know which way it'll go. But we hope this book makes a difference in the evaluation of whether they should do this at all. Because one of my concerns is that the outsiders are the knowledge producers about our culture and the insiders are consumers. So they are producing the knowledge, we are buying it, consuming it, our children and our media, the ideas on who we are are being brought in by somebody else. This is not the case in China. China studies, Mandarin studies are squarely controlled by their insiders. All the prestigious journals, conferences, academic centers are at China. Same is true for Persian studies in Persia, in Iran, Arabic studies in the Arabian countries, Japan studies, etc. So this ours is the only major civilization whose intellectual discourse is controlled from the outside. And our people are very enthusiastic that they are, they are paying attention to us. So it's sort of like a compliment that somebody else is studying us. So the way I located these outsiders is by looking at what is different in their discourse from the way the insiders have seen it. That doesn't mean it's wrong. Sometimes outsiders are better off in they're more objective, less emotionally invested, and that can be good. So I'm not opposed to others looking at it. I'm just looking, I'm just looking at what exactly is their output that would be red flags. So one of the major concerns is the elimination of the sacred dimension. The whole Parmartika, what the Vedas call Parmartika, is being eliminated by this kind of school of thought because they consider it either superstition or they consider it backward, they consider it socially oppressive, exploitation, all of that Marxist critique gets applied. And then a large issue is they consider the whole Vedic tradition and Sanskrit is sort of the leading culprit, is leading cause of it. The Vedas and Sanskrit together are seen as sort of socially oppressive. Uh, they are elitist, Brahmanical, uh, ha and have oppressed women, Shudras, and so on. Another issue is the uh, way the texts they study are seen through the lens of politics. This is political, the, the texts are for a political purpose. They were written for the elite to dominate, and that's how they're looking at it. And so the term they use is political philology. Political philology is a methodology to study these texts, and political philology means that philology is the study of texts, scientific or analytical or systematic way of uh, looking at a text, finding its meaning. That's called philology. That is well known. There are many kinds of philologies different people have, but political philology is a new kind of a fashion which means looking for the political motives in a text. 
But for us, there's no political motive necessarily. It's a spiritual motive. It's a, a text, maybe a sacred text, or a text, maybe a mathematical text, an astronomical text. It doesn't serve a political purpose. There's no agenda to go and uh, get political power through that text. But that's what political philology is looking for. To respond to that, I've coined the term sacred philology and propose that we should balance the political philology method with the sacred philology method so we have a more e even view. Uh, the outsiders want to look at it politically. I want to propose also look at it in a sacred way. So I started looking at who are these outsiders? How do you characterize them? Um, what, what is distinct about them? And how should a traditional scholar from India look at, how, how would he relate to them? The point is that the fact, the sad fact is that the traditional scholars have not done the Purva Paksha of these Western Indologists. Purva Paksha is the art and science of uh, studying the other on your own terms, understanding them in a very respectful way, and then giving an Uttar Paksha response. It's a very old Indian system. The different schools would do Purva Paksha on each other in a very civilized way, a very you know, friendly manner, but, but very serious uh, debates would happen. And for, somehow we have not done, our traditionalists have not done Purvapaksha of the dominant uh, Western Indology or dominant schools of Indology. Either they are dismissive, that, oh, it doesn't matter, which is a cop-out, or they are very bombastic, very quick to sort of blast them without even paying attention, without even having taken the time to study. Or they are plain old disinterested, uh, living in a silo. They'll give you all kinds of excuses. But the fact is that unless, to keep a tradition vibrant, you must know other people's point of view and you must engage them. You cannot just isolate and, and sort of disregard them. You have to engage them. So this absence of Purva Paksha, I believe, is very costly. And, I, and this book is a Purva Paksha I'm doing of Western Indology. And I want more traditional scholars to join me. And I feel the traditional scholars are actually, they are the ones who ought to be doing it, not me. But one of the problems they have is they don't know English. A lot of the traditional Sanskrit scholars don't know English. I've given, this, given the books of Western Indologists to several traditional scholars and asked them for help. And after days, weeks, even months of trying, they've come back and said, we cannot make head or tail of what they're saying because it's very complicated English. It's not just ordinary English, it's complicated English. And it's not just English, but the idiom, and they, keep, they are referring to Western thinkers that most of you would never have heard of. Thinkers like Benjamin, thinkers like Gramsci, Vico, which are not part of our general knowledge. So a traditional Sanskrit scholar, it's all kind of blue sky, it's all weird stuff. He has no idea what they're talking about. And yet they're talking about our culture. So even though the subject matter is Sanskrit and Sanskriti and Sanskrit studies, it's being done in such a way that the traditional scholar doesn't feel that uh, he can understand. So what has happened is traditional scholars have withdrawn and they're not part of the global discourse on Sanskrit studies. This is the issue I'm trying to resolve. Now, the single, the, the way to, the best way to describe, and this is where this segue will take me to a discussion with Rodham, I'm hoping. The best way to describe the school of thought that I'm critiquing is to think of them as a new kind of charvaks. Earlier charvaks, who you can call them 
Charvak 1.0, were a school of thought that uh, dismissed the Vedas, dismissed Shruti. Uh, they were dismisses of the sacred transcendental dimension. They were very empirically sharp. They believed in the material world and what you can see with your senses, uh, like modern science in some ways. Uh, that is what the truth is. So the claims of the Vedas and all that, any Shruti type idea or spiritual idea would be dismissed. So they're, they're, that's what the Charvaks were. Charvaks were respect respectable people, very learned, uh, very highly qualified in, uh, in, uh, in grammar and Sanskrit and very fierce fighters and debaters. The Charvak 2.0 are the new Charvaks that is the subject of my study. In the sense of being materialist and rejecting the Vedas, they are similar to Charvak 1.0. But there are many new qualities that have entered Charvak 2.0, which did not exist previously. Uh, the Charvak 2.0 are basically materially very wealthy. They, uh, they come from, from rich institutions. They have a lot of power. So they can control the discourse. They can deny the insiders equal play. They are connected, they are connected with Western power centers. The Charvak 1.0 were not like that. They were, they were modest people and they were not sort of uh, uh, kind of materially dominating or politically very strong. Uh, so, but the Charvak 2.0 can throttle, can choke uh, the, the insider view from the Vedic side, which was not the case with Charvak 1.0. So they're more dangerous in a sense to the Vedic point of view. Now, the question is, uh, how, in what ways has knowledge evolved since the early times till today? In what ways has knowledge changed that with reference to the Charvaks, whether it's 1.0 or 2.0, in what ways have things changed? And this, I think, is the crux of a, a point I want to uh, discuss with, uh, with Radham. Uh, the, I think, and I've known Radham for 25 years and had many discussions of this kind, so I'm very glad he's here. And, and as, as I understand it, Radham is very strong on empiricism as a basis for establishing truth. And so were the Charvaks. So the Charvaks idea was since you cannot establish the truth in the Vedas empirically, so we got to reject them. That kind of a thing. Now, something interesting has happened, which was not possible before. Thanks to the West, actually the West has played a role. Now there is instrumentation to measure not your consciousness, but it correlate with your consciousness. You could, I claim a certain state of consciousness. I claim I'm having a certain experience. Now I cannot publicly, you, we cannot do public verification because it's private. But what we can measure is some brain state. We can, with using, using an instrument, we can measure a brain state. So if Rajiv says, I did this uh, mantra, this, this particular technique, and I tried it for 10, 10 years, and I reached a certain state of bliss or anand or whatever the, uh, the tradition calls it. And the, if the measurement develops a correlate, and then they try this with 100 other people who've tried the same kind of technique and who also claim that they got the same result. Uh, and they, they look at the correlate, the material physical correlate, the, the objective empirical correlate of different meditators' states. And they find something common. So they've isolated a signature. 
They've isolated a measurable signature which corresponds to a certain claim. So this is an inner claim with an outer measurement. It's not as hard empirically as looking at a galaxy, which 100 people can look through different telescopes and they all conclude the same thing. Or if you look at an electron microscope and do the same experiment, everybody can say we got similar results. Uh, we're talking about something which is not as hard and as solid, empirical, empirically verifiable in a public sense, but it is not as subjective and arbitrary as it used to be before this particular measurement was available. Because before this measurement was available, if somebody said, I'm experiencing this, well, you don't know what he's talking about. Maybe he is, maybe he's not. There's no way to evaluate it. And this correlative measurement is becoming more and more sophisticated. So we're not at a stage yet where a machine can say, this is what you're thinking, or you're sad, or whatever. But it, it, it's really getting there. It's getting to a point where uh, the inner experience, as, evalu as measured by people, is getting more and more correlated with outer. I, I just came across a scientific uh, paper in the US and some people who said that they are now able to, with objective measurements, tell when somebody who's an addict is about to, about to slip back. In other words, whatever he's experiencing, his craving to go back and take that substance, uh, they're able to predict before he actually does it. And hence, they can get him help. So this is an example of the inner state, the adhyatmic state, being somewhat measurable, not perfectly. This opens the possibility that we now may have something you, we could call adhyatmic empiricism. So it is not external empiricism necessarily, but it is a kind of an inner science which is now verifiable. This is now beginning to become possible. And so this opens the possibility that the charvaks have to now up, upgrade their posture towards, towards the transcendental claims, the inner claims, the spiritual claims, because to some extent these may be, these may be verifiable, public, in a publicly verifiable sense. And you cannot just simply dismiss all that. So uh, that's one of the points of debate I want to start with the charvak 2.0, that uh, while the Charvak 2.0 is in his Sanskrit department in Columbia University, he doesn't know about these developments. Across the campus is a neuroscience department in the same university, and they are very excited about all this. So you have, you have the, uh, the inner science, cognitive science, neuroscience people uh, very excited about what they can now measure and consider to be scientific truth about yogic claims and things of that sort. And yet, the department which is supposed to be uh, studying Sanskrit and whatnot is very dismissive of all that and thinks it's all hum humbug and, and so on. So I'm also trying to create a debate between one kind of Westerner and another kind of Westerner. The scientific Westerner versus the one who studies uh, you know, these traditions in a very classical, philological manner. So that's, a, that's an area uh, I have. Um, we have... I was in an ashram a few days ago where I witnessed uh, little kids demonstrating third eye awakening. Third eye awakening, this is, I couldn't believe it, but one kid after another, they would, you block their eyes, you check it out, you block their eyes, and they are totally blocked, and you get to do it yourself. And then you write whatever you want, and you hold it, and they can read it with eyes closed. Some of them can read it from behind also. 
and it's, there's no, uh, and this has been demonstrated by this group in the U.S. and other places, and they're, they're beginning to uh, come out a little bit more into the open and have scientists measure this empirically so that it's verifiable. Now, of course, time will tell us exactly how much they've done, what it all means, but these, these sort of measurable claims are popping up more and more compared to what was the case in the previous eras. So that's the, maybe we need Charvak 3.0. Maybe we need Charvak 3.0. And the Charvak 2.0 I'm critiquing is obsolete because they are so dismissive, uh, like the Charvak 1.0, uh, they are so dismissive and also they consider the tradition to be a sub, the cause of human rights violations. They're sort of Marxist leftist view of the whole Sanskrit, Sanskriti tradition as, as a source of problems. Now, I do agree we have social problems. I'm not denying that. Every culture has these social problems, different kinds of social problems. But I don't think a wholesale dismissal of the tradition on that ground is a justified, justified thing. So um, that's, uh, that's, I could go on, but the clock tells me it's 6.25, and Rodham has to leave at 6.45. So what I want to do is stop and ask Rodham to give his comments, and then we continue the discussion. Thank you very much.